Hey friends, just a quick reminder before we get into today's episode, come join us over on our Patreon. That's where we release bonus episodes every other week, and we've already got over 20 episodes from 2023 that you can download and binge right now for as little as $3 a month. We've covered so many good books there, Haunting Adeline, Chateau, Gothicana, and so many more. That's also where we'll cover any books in a series we continue, so Serpent and Dove, High Mountain Court, Serpent in the Wings of Night. You can continue those series with us on Patreon right now. Finally, as a patron, we let you know what we're going to read every month so you can read along with us if that's your jam. Anyway, that's all from me. On to today's episode. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the trope of, like, there's two types of fantasy books. One where, like, the dragons used to be here, and maybe one day they'll come back and grace us with their presence. And then the other type of fantasy is, how the fuck do we get rid of these dragons? <laughs> so true. <laughs> I love that. Welcome to Your Safe Space, the podcast your partner, friends, parents, whoever thinks is dirty. Don't have time to read books? Want to understand the jokes in the TikToks? We got you, fam. We're the Spice Traders, and we deal in spicy books. I'm Katie, and I need it to make sense. I'm Liz, and I'm hypercritical. As always, we start every episode with three things. The first is a generic trigger warning. You can find specific triggers for this book in our show notes, so please check those out. Also, we do use foul language and talk a lot about sex. If you have sensitivity to any of this, please give this episode a skip. Secondly, we talk about books. The whole book, nothing but the book, so help me goddess. If you plan to read this book and don't want something spoiled right now, don't listen to this episode. Lastly, we acknowledge that a good book can hit you at the wrong time. The views expressed in our discussion are our opinion, and we absolutely don't want to diminish the work and the talent of the authors in our community. That said, we have some notes. So Liz, what are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros, published in 2023, and it is the first book in the Empyrean series. The second book came out November of this year. I think it released like last week um, as at the time of recording. The series will be longer than the two books, but I think it's undetermined how many books Rebecca is going to publish. This book is 662 pages, which is a big boy. It's a chonker. Which, as a heads up, we will be breaking into multiple episodes. So this is the first episode of Fourth Wing. Yeah, because I don't think I can sit here and record for six hours like we used to do. Like, that's just a big commitment for me. <laughs> Listen, doing it like this is so much better. And I think it's better for the listeners. I hope so. I sure hope so. I hope so. Hopefully we'll get feedback on that someday. Um, Now, this book is absolutely gorgeous. It is a it really is. gold cover. We get some silhouettes of dragons. So we already get that fantasy vibe. I need to look at the cover as I speak. It says fourth wing. So we have um, a golden dragon right in the middle with a black dragon up in the corner and these whimsical clouds around. It's really clean. It's really pretty. I don't have I have no bad things to say about the cover. I don't either. And I also, I will mention some other aspects about the design of this book that I like when we get into the meat. But the other thing that I like that this book has, I don't think that it necessarily started, but it definitely popularized the um, the painted edges 
in mainstream media. Yes. So, like, I don't have a copy of that book, but I did order the second book with the the colored edges, and I just, I love the way that that looks, um, and I think it makes the book really special. It does make the book really special. This author did do a run of, like, limited edition painted edges, which I think, like you said, kind of brought that back into vogue. That's the vogue. only word in my yeah. head. Okay, good. I was like, that's the only <laughs> word in my head. You get it. Yeah. Um, and it really has, I think, exploded in a lot of different ways because I've had books that I've sprayed edges where they're just colored. Um, but I've seen a lot of really amazing auth- authors. Jesus. I've seen a lot of really amazing artists on TikTok hand painting the pages. Yes. Like I've seen yes. Lord of the Rings ones where they're painting like the Shire on the yeah. edges. Oh, they're so pretty. Gorgeous. Yeah. It really makes me want to be intentional about the books that I have in my library so that I can eventually have like a good collection of painted edge books or something. I don't know. I did see someone. Listen, I saw someone on TikTok that was like, I love painted edges, but now that means that I have to buy two copies of every book so that I can display one spine out and one edges out. God damn it. (laughs) And I was like, "Mm, yeah. And they're like, and then they release special editions and that covers different. So then I have to buy that one. And next thing you know, I just have like a library of just fourth wing. That's fine. Because they're gorgeous. Stay consistent. Bigger library. That's you just need more bookshelves. And I am definitely guilty of buying slash keeping books that are just pretty, even if I hate the book. Oh, 100%. I have, um, (laughs) I think it was the Book of Lost Things or something like that, which was a really sad book. And I did not like, did not love the content of the book, but it's a beautiful book. So I kept it. Did not bring you joy. Did not bring me joy. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Well done, Rebecca. Well done, Rebecca. Um, Okay. So, Katie. Take us into the meat. You said that, and that sounds gross to me, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> Let's get into the meat. All Bring right. me into the meat. The meaty <laughs> so, greedy. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Uh, so I, I bought two different copies of this book. So I bought the physical copy because it's gorgeous, like we just talked about. But I read it on Kindle because it's just way easier to read on my iPad and take notes on my iPad at the same time. Also, um, you're not carrying around a 600-page book. Yeah, for real. Like, I, I rarely keep a purse on me, let alone a 600-page book. Come on. Right. Or a purse that would fit a 600-page book. That's the one, really. Um, so there's a couple of things more about this book that I love. Um, one of them is that the map is actually integrated into the inside cover of the book, which makes for a really slick experience. I really don't like books or I find it a a not optimal experience when there's a map that's across two different pages and then you can't really see the inside of the map because it's in the binding or I hate when the map is super small so you can't like see everything in detail yeah but this one is really just integrated really well and there's a lot of detail um there's a nice like border around it with some different symbols and then um just really well done I also like the idea of it being on just the cover because simply from an ease of use perspective, it's way easier for me to just flip the front cover open to look for it than to try and hunt for it in the first like 10 pages of a book. A hundred percent. Yeah. We don't get a whole lot of detail in terms of like, like specific cities or like roads or anything like that, but we do get a supercontinent and we do have a couple of places of interest. 
Um, north is where it should be. <laughs> the dimensions of the map are, they make sense based on what happens in the book. So I, I don't have a whole lot of negative things to say about that, if any. No, the map is quite nice. And I don't even remember which book didn't have north in the right place, but it will never be forgotten. Oh, I do. It's, uh, it was the one, it's Air Awakens. That's the one, it's Air Awakens. Oh, okay. Yep. And I think we did like it. It's just one of those ones that, one, it didn't have smut in the first book, and then also there was a bunch of geopolitical stuff that wasn't meaningful, and so it yeah. was just boring. And I think we did some, like, digging, and there wasn't going to be smut in the second book either. Yeah. Okay, so I think why I blocked out the map for that one is because in my head, I just see the cover where she has three arms and her elbow's yes. broken. <laughs> Multiple problems in that. <laughs> um but we digress. We are not talking about Air Awakens. Right. <laughs> this map is lovely. It However, is lovely. Um, unfortunately, because the physical copy is so well integrated, it does result in it having a distinct advantage over the Kindle edition. Not only is the map really well done in the physical copy, you actually don't get a map of the world in the Kindle version. And I triple checked this before we started to record this. Okay, good. I was just going to check to be like, really? Yes, because it, it seems like kind of a miss, right? Like, <laughs> there are things that happen that you need some kind of physical orientation for that would be helpful, and you just don't get that, at least in the version of the Kindle thing that I had. No, you don't. You just get the map of the college, which is unnecessary. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that having the, the kind of overall map would have been useful. I'm not somebody that's great with directions, so when they start talking about north and east and to the west, it's like, what? And I like having a sense of space, like with a well executed map, I have a sense of distance. So yes. like when they go from the college to wherever the fuck they go and like it's snowing there, but not at the college. I like having, okay, how far did we travel? Right. Like <laughs> all the way down to the bottom of the continent. Yeah. And like, what is that? Is it an island or is it like North America? <laughs> right. Exactly. So as Liz mentioned, we do get the Kindle, a map in the Kindle version, but it's just of the, the War College. So um, one note, I'm going to say the name of the War College, and I'm not trying to pick sides, but I am <laughs> going to use the Gallic pronunciations of this these words because TikTok tells me that that's how I should pr pronounce them. So I'm sorry if this is not correct, but we will link the TikTok pronunciation guide that we are using because my god i have no idea how to pronounce these in my native tongue no and they're really beautiful words they really are when you hear a gallic speaker say them i'm just like oh yeah but i have this yeah chunky american tongue <laughs> ham-fisted yeah. ham-fisted american tongue doing our best over here so this war college is named baz skiath and it is made up of two primary buildings separated by a river and connected by two bridges. So the bridges will become important later on um, as we get into the story. But the map of the college itself is more or less fine. useless. Like the map is fine. You just don't need it. You really don't. Um, <laughs> it's a school. It's a school. It is better than the map we get in um, Gothicana. <laughs> <laughs> Anything is better than that. <laughs> because at least this map, like, distances seem kind of appropriate i don't fucking right. know it's fine <laughs> um <laughs> yeah <laughs> so <laughs> our setting is a country named navarre 
And this book is immediately already really into itself because it has this disclaimer before we even get into the book. Quote, the following text has been faithfully transcribed from Navarian into the modern language by Jacinia Nailwort, curator of the Scribe Quadrant at Baz Skiath War College. All events are true and names have been preserved to honor the courage of those fallen. May their souls be commended to Malik. And I have to be honest. Between this and the setting of this book, I really chose violence when I was reading it. For a number of reasons. One, I'm tired of books that take themselves way too seriously. Because right up front, there's a number of things in this disclaimer that I just don't give a shit about. And I think it's a little bit of a spoiler to say, hey, most people in this book die. Cool. Yeah, that part I was like, great. Amazing. And that this is clearly like past tense. We're not really following as it currently rolls out. Exactly. The second thing is that I'm just really tired of books based around schools that are based around social constructs that make no fucking sense. Like, we'll very quickly get into conscription day or whatever the fuck they call it, but it's just like, I still to this day don't understand why we're here, and I honestly don't care. And so (laughs) if I come off a little salty, (laughs) that's why. And... We will get into it, but the whole, really the original issue in this book, like the first conflict that serves the whole rest of the book doesn't make any fucking sense. So because the first point doesn't make sense, the rest of it is hard for me to take as seriously because there's no consequences. There's no consequences and I don't buy why we're here. No, because we don't need to be here. Everything else... All of, all of the other things just seem like trite problems of that are totally fixable and are totally under your own control. And are easily fixable. Again, with right. no consequences. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, come on, guys. It's ridiculous. Okay. So let's get into the story. Um, we begin on this conscription day that I mentioned. And our protagonist, Violet, trudges along with a 30-pound pack. And my note here is, oh, the military of it all. Yes, my 30-pound pack that I couldn't put down, I needed to take with the stairs with me. Yes, quite. Yes, yes, quite. My pack. So she's headed to the the kind of general of the school's office. And this is on the day that all young adults, so 20-year-old idiots, <laughs> choose what they're going to do for their country for the rest of their lives. No pressure. No pressure. Also, we'll get some more detail, but there's essentially four options. Who's, like, delivering mail, making food, (laughs) making clothes, teaching children? Like, there's, I don't understand what those people are. Yeah, growing food. Like, all of the infrastructure that you would need to support an economy and a organization of this size none of those things exist and we don't get a whole lot of information on the alternatives to going to this war college and so again right off the bat we have a social construct that again makes no fucking sense to me and has so much stress put on it for it to make such little sense yes i can forgive things that don't make sense if they don't matter to the plot this is what the entire plot is built on It is, because the impression that we get is that every single 20-year-old 
goes to the school. It's not, this is an option that you can do. No, every single person in this country goes through this school. So the choices are, you can become a healer, a scribe, a writer, or part of the infantry. There is kind of a hierarchy here that's important, and it will become more important as the story goes on. But essentially, the writers are at the top of that pyramid, and infantry are at the bottom, and then healers and scribes kind of fall somewhere in the middle. Most people who want to be writers have been training their entire lives for this day, but our protagonist, Violet, has been training for six months. And that's going about as well as you can imagine, which is to say, not well at all. It also seems like of the four choices, the writers are the hardest to get into, like the most discerning as to who actually, quote unquote, graduates. Um, a big part of the reason why is because a lot of them die at school. Yeah, discerning, <laughs> discerning makes it sound like someone's choosing yeah. you and saying, run along home if you don't meet the bar. Yeah, no, they're, no, they're it's dead. dead. <laughs> it's like yeah. you graduate or you die. You don't get a second chance or a second choice. So again, this choice is what the entire plot is based on. And our protagonist has only been training for six months out of her 20 years on the planet. And the reason that she's only been training for six months is because she had, growing up, always wanted to be a scribe. And that's what she was preparing for. So it's kind of like taking the, like, quintessential like high school nerd and making them try out for the varsity football team. Yeah. If the football team was made up of dragons and murderers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) it's, it's a bit problematic to say the least. Yeah. So (laughs) we can, So I mentioned that Violet was going to the general's office and we find out that that the general, General Sorengale, is actually her mother. And she is in charge of the school, which exists to train an ever-refreshing force of people who will keep Navarre safe from its murderous neighbor, Pormorial, and their griffin riders. So, okay, Navarre and Pormorial are two countries that are at war. They don't like each other. Navarre has dragon riders and Pomorial has griffin riders. That's how they're conducting battle, mostly. The other major issue I had with this social structure is that as we get into it, it, it is a war college. So we get a lot of militaristic training and language and all of these things. We're never told why these countries are at war. Are we? Ah, yes, (laughs) we are. Okay. (laughs) But it's been so long since I've read the book. uh, I don't remember what it is. It's not super clear. Okay. And by the end of the book, you do get the impression that the whole basis for the war is a falsehood. Okay, right. I do remember that. So that's fine. Yeah. But but we do know that they've been at war for a while. A while. Like a hundred years or something like that. hundred years war. <laughs> That's a war. <laughs> okay, Charles Dickens. <laughs> okay, so when Violet goes to General Sorengale's office, she runs into her sister, Mira, and Mira is arguing with the general. They're arguing particularly about what the general's going to do with Violet. Mira is of the mind that Violet is a weakling who will never be cut out to be a driver, dragon rider. Damn. 
She thinks this because Violet has trained her whole life to be a scribe, but for some reason, now, six months ago, her mother assigned Violet to the writers. Which- Out of the blue. Out of the blue, because you don't really assign children to any- Because these are children- to anything. It's like their own choice. No. Right. Her mom is just like, no, you're going to do this now because. Because I'm, I said so. Because I'm your mother. Right. Because we don't ever get a good reason. Which is my biggest qualm with. Well, maybe not my biggest qualm, but it's a really big qualm I have with this book. It's a really big part of the problem that I have with this book. And it will come up multiple times. So like buckle up, buckle buttercups. Up buttercups. <laughs> <laughs> So Mira is 26 and very fit. She is described as, quote, her skin practically glowing with health and her golden brown hair sheared short for combat in the same style as the generals. Violet is not these things. (laughs) She is pale and she remarks that even her hair is pale. Quote, it's cut just above her shoulders where the brown strands start to lose their warmth of color and slowly fade to a steely metallic silver by the ends. Her mother finds fault with this hair because it's a physical manifestation of a sickness that Violet contracted when she was working in the library. Something, something. I don't know. This seemed like just an excuse to give Violet weird hair. Yeah, and it uh, it's something that I don't like in these fantasy books is just, like, making them stand up for no reason. Like, giving them purple eyes or... Cerulean hair. Cerulean hair. Like... She's enough of an outcast without giving her this weird hair. And the hair really doesn't mean anything. Yeah, well, so it's it's twofold, right? Like, her hair is silver and got this weird thing going on. But then also, as the book goes on, Ape gives nothing away to say that she also refuses to cut it, even though most female writers do, because it's a liability. Think about having a log braid down your back. Somebody could grab it and cut your head off. So it's, yeah. like, notable for two different reasons. And I'm just like, you could have picked one. I promise we like this book at the end, guys. (laughs) We do. We do. It's just, I think it's fair that this book, especially at the beginning, gets a fair amount of constructive feedback because it could use some improvement. Yes. So we learned a little bit more about Violet uh, and why she wanted to be a scribe. Particularly, her father was a scribe and he trained with Violet himself. And so Violet really takes offense at her mother's disdain for the profession, and she kind of feels it not only reflected back on her, but also on her father. This is especially painful because her father has been dead for more than a year at this point, and they're all still kind of dealing and grappling with that loss. We learn, kind of roundabout, the reason why her mother is forcing this decision, and it seems to be this, quote, this is the the general speaking, and she says, quote, You're the daughter of a writer, you are 20 years old, and today is conscription day. I let you finish your tutoring, but like I told you last spring, I will not watch one of my children enter the scribe quadrant, Violet. So it really just sounds like her mother's a bitch. Yeah, and if this was a problem from the get-go, why let her finish her tutoring in the first place? Because it really sounds like you're just setting her up to be dead. Well, yeah, it sounds like she'd rather have a dead daughter than a scribe daughter, and that's just like really problematic yeah so like why why does it matter and we'll see later but the scribes are not disrespected like they are held highly they are valued like they maintain all the history all the knowledge a lot of like the war documents and information right so the intelligence gathering all of that it's not like 
they've all been CEOs and Violet's like, cool, I'm going to be a janitor, which like nothing right. against our custodial <laughs> staff. Like you work hard, but uh, it, it doesn't make any fucking sense. It doesn't make any sense. No. Or, or maybe a, a better way to say that would be like, you've been a dairy farmer all your life and now you want to go work with pigs. Yeah. Like what? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Mira continues to argue with their mother, something that always got her extra brownie points, but uh, for some reason had the opposite effect when Violet was talking back. Violet is at once grateful that Mira is standing up for her, but she also hates that Mira is calling her weak while also recognizing that she is. And this (laughs) continues to be a theme. She hates to be called weak, but also fully acknowledges that she is physically weak. And I'm like, okay, which is it? yeah like humans are complicated things but this back and forth happens far too often in the book it loses its power like just decide you're not weak or embrace that you are I I don't I don't understand or I wish she would have said or embraced a little bit sooner like I might be physically weak but I can do this because I'm smart yes because that does come into play later she should acknowledge that now so in this argument, General Sorengale says something to the effect that because Violet is used to dealing with pain well, she'll have a better chance of survival, which, oof. And it, it should be mentioned here, and we get a little bit more detail as the book goes on, but the sickness that she contracted that turned her, turned her hair silver also left her with a, a chronic pain. So she has this disability that causes her chronic pain and then also makes her prone to injuries, really really easily so like dislocated shoulders um broken things all over the place and we're given to understand that this is a product of the sickness that she had when she was younger yeah Ehlers-Danlos the one of the most common signs and symptoms include overly flexible joints there you go and not in like a convenient way like in a your joints will dislocate easily and you're in a lot of pain awesome So as the argument continues, we learn a little bit more about the world. So we learn that the general obviously is a writer, as is the sister Mira. And writers not only have cool dragons that they get to ride around on, but the relationship and the bond that they have with dragons allows them to manifest what what they call a signet power, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's magic. It's magic. And it's unique to every writer. So the general's signet power is storms she can make a squall show up. I was really stoked to read a book about dragons. When I was younger, I was like super into dragons. Um, I remember when that Aragon series came out, which in retrospect Hell is yeah. maybe not the best. I oh, don't know. Not good. Yeah. But like, I fucking love dragons. And I feel like we haven't seen dragons in fantasy in a, in a while. I feel like they kind of fell out of fashion for favor yeah. of elves. Uh, okay, so we also learned that Violet and Mira had a brother whose name was Brennan. Brennan died fighting in the Tyrig Rebellion, and Brennan was the general's favorite child. Mira throws Brennan's death in the general's face, asking whether she wishes to bury another child. Oof. Which I think the general's answer, honest answer, would have been yes. Yes, I do. I'm fine with that. Yep. No worries. So this causes the general to tell Mira to leave, and she does. 
When the general and Violet are alone, the general tells Violet that as soon as she enters the conscription day thing, that she won't be able to acknowledge Violet for three years since she'll be her far superior officer and it would be, it would be inappropriate. Violet remarks inwardly that it won't be much different than the current state of thing, which woof. It also seems like a no shit B she does get acknowledged because they're going to school. So the general is there, there <laughs> and um, involved in, I don't know, choosing the elite military. So like, I can't acknowledge you is intense. I feel like, I feel like it's just an excuse for her to be a bitch. Right. Cause yeah. acknowledgement is different than like favoritism. Right. Like I can't talk to you. Like we can't hang out. Or whatever. Right. Or can't, yeah, I can't favor you. I can't help you when you're there. Not that you right. would anyway, bitch. Right. Which is totally fair. But to not even look at her daughter like she does sometimes in, in the future of this book that we'll see, like, she, good God. Yeah, for no fucking reason. Yeah. So Violet leaves and meets Mira outside the office. And Mira does the same thing for Violet that Brennan did for her when it was her conscription day, which is to say, basically, to take her to a room, repack her things, and, like, basically get her more prepared than she is for this trial. Not at all. Yeah. So, the theory that I had earlier, I am going to voice, because I'm curious. And maybe I saw this on TikTok. Maybe this is not an original thought. (laughs) What if Violet is not Sorengale's daughter? Like, is like a bastard child from her husband. Maybe. I just. Why would it matter? I just want to know why she hates her so much. That's all I want. I really, I just want some explanation as to why her mom hates her. It feels like at some point in this series, if we don't get a satisfying answer to that question, it will significantly reduce how I think about this book. Me too. Because it it is such a pivotal concept in this book and like the flashpoint of why we're here. Yes. That if the author doesn't explain it, like for, for me, there's two reasons. One, either the general is purely evil and fucking hates Violet and everybody else and is actively plotting against her Everyone, country. yeah. Or two... She's, she actually thinks that what she's doing is good and she's trying to set her daughter up for success to, like, have this big future and, like, help everybody, but she doesn't want to let the evil people on to the fact that that's what she's doing. So she's, like, playing this part, you know? But then why would she support Mira? I don't know. I agree. If we don't get a satisfactory answer, it's it very much could, like, ruin my ever even recommending the book yeah i mean it is telling i think that mira and violet don't look anything alike yeah so i guess it could be possible i just find it difficult to believe that like a person in general sorengale's position could get away with having a third kid and not being visibly pregnant no that's true and like i also don't think i would like that it's pretty weak it's, it's a little weak. Like, why? Why? Why would you hate? <laughs> <Why>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, it feels a little Game of Thronesy. It does, yeah. Um, I just, I just, I need to know why. And I, I think, <laughs> I, 
I think even as we go through the book, like this question of why is going to come up more and more because so many decisions are based around this, this pivotal thing, like I said, and it's just, I'm really hoping that number the book number two delivers on it. Yes. I don't know why I dragged that S out for so long. That was creepy. Anyway, so <laughs> in this process, we we find out that Violet is a yet another heroine that's good with daggers. Woo. Oh, goody. Oh, goody. Good, good. How unique. Never seen that before. Never, ever. So, as I mentioned, Mira proceeds to rip out all the bullshit that Violet has put in her pack. It seems like the rucksack is the only thing that they're allowed to take with them in this conscription day thing. So, of course, Violet has put a much fuck ton of things in it that she doesn't fucking need, like books. <laughs> like so, like only books. Only books. And I'm like, ma'am, you're factually an idiot. Come on. Also, we find out that, like, I mean, I don't know about the actual students, but, like, there's a library. There is a library. That they can visit. She has access to the military, like, the whole college's library. Like, there's no reason. It just, uh, she's an idiot. She's an idiot. Like, we do find one book later that, like, maybe is special, but she has, like, 37 books in this pack. Right. So, the last thing is that uh, Mira gives her a couple of things. So, one of them is a pair of rubber-soled boots that will help her in the trial, which takes place on a bridge 18 inches wide and 200 feet off the ground. She also gives her better-fitting clothing that so that Violet will be more agile and she won't have, like, fabric for people to grab onto, right? Because not only is the challenge itself of getting through this, this bridge harrowing, but it's basically open season for different um different other competitors to try to kill you essentially yeah everything leading up to and to the end of the bridge is just a free-for-all of death a free-for-all of death um part of the clothing that she gives her is basically this breastplate made of dragon scales and it doesn't really matter how but essentially dragons are huge right so it, it it's not like one big dragon scale Mira used the power of somebody that she knows to, to shrink down the scales and they're, they're scales of her own dragon. So she like had this vest made for Violet to keep her safe. Which is, And I gotta say without this help, like Violet would be fucking dead. She would be dead 10 times over without this. Real dead. So Mira, one of the last things that she does is she braids Violet's hair because Violet refuses to cut it. So she braids it in like a crown uh, along her head so that nobody can grab it. And she tries to, like, pack in all of these nuggets of wisdom before Violet has to enter the trial. She tells her never to be without her daggers or her armor, to always be aware and observant. The other cadets were gonna, are definitely going to be harder on Violet because of who she is. She's a Sorengale, and they're just not going to like that. And so they're, they're having this moment, but then the, the gong rings out or whatever, and they know it's time to go down to the gates where the others are gathered to enter the trial. As they go down there, there's also empty carts for the people who die for, like, the bodies. Bring out your dead! Bring out your dead! <laughs> Bury that. Um, and Mira, Mira and Violet see this and it becomes real, right? So Mira hugs Violet and tells her that she loves her. And I have prediction one, which is that Mira's gonna die at some point. Yeah, because she's the only friend. So <laughs> as they walk, Mira tells Violet to find Dane Atos, who used to be Violet's friend and love interest before he joined the writers the prior year. Mira goes on to say that he will keep her safe, but 
definitely don't sleep with him because she doesn't want to be seen as sleeping her way to the top. And Mira's like, or Violet's like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> um, she does caveat that even though she shouldn't sleep with Dane, she should sleep around, but only with first years, right? Like she doesn't know what the next day will bring. She should live her life and have fun. And I like that sex positivity. Yeah. She counsels Violet to seek not friendship, but rather to forge alliances and to remember that everybody is out there for their own game. Bit bleak. In line for the roll call, they see a young blonde man with markings on his skin. And we learn that he, along with all of the other children of the Tyrish Rebellion, were marked by General Melgren's dragon as separatists. So General Melgren is essentially General Sorengale's boss. He's the head honcho. And this Tyrish Rebellion was when a part of Navarre tried to rebel against the government. And all of the rebellion leader's children were marked as rebel leaders' children. You might think, wow, that sounds really shitty. It gets worse. It's worse. So <laughs> Violet also finds this cruel, but she admits that one of the first rules of the Baskiath College is to never question a dragon as they tend to incinerate anybody that they find rude. So it wasn't that necessarily that General Melgren made this decision in a vacuum. His dragon was the one that marked them, and so his dragon was in on the decision. You can't say no to a dragon. Nope. So this conversation prompts Mira to remember that Zayden Riorson is currently a third year writer and she warns Violet to stay away from him as he will kill her on the spot once he realizes who she is. This is because his father was someone named the Great Betrayer in the Tyrish Rebellion. So he was essentially the leader of all of this. We go on to learn that not only were the children marked, but all of the rebel leaders' children were conscripted also as punishment for the sins of their parents. So these children do not get a choice between faction, so to speak. They have to join the riders. And specifically yeah. the riders, not the infantry. So like, we're going to put you where you're most likely to die. But also gives yeah. you the most power if you don't die. Right. So like, that, that, that that's a little make weird. Sense to me. No, I feel like put they them in the infantry if you wanted them to die. Right. Or if you don't want them to have any power, because those are just like grunts, I would imagine. Right. We don't really know. We like never see any. Well, and OK, so going back to one of the main problems that I have with this book is social contracts, constructs that don't make any fucking sense. So we learned from Violet's internal monologue that the writers is the only the only quadrant of this school that does and the military by extension that doesn't accept conscriptions. They only accept volunteers. Except when it comes to the children of rebel leaders, I guess. That, and there's a lot. It's not just like five guys. It, there's like 80 fucking kids. It's a ton. It doesn't make any sense. Like, what? Make, okay. You don't accept, you don't accept conscriptions. But you're going to accept this large group of conscriptions over here. That are going to take place for the next 20 years or so. Yeah, because there's still, like, children of traitors that are, like, six. So right. they're still really young. up and coming. Yeah. That didn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't make sense to me either. Especially when we learn, like, the power that you do get, like... <laughs> it seems like a big liability. Yeah! <laughs> also, let's not punish children for the sins of their fathers. But if you're going to, make it make sense. 
So they're standing in line, and at this point, Mira is recognized because she's kind of famous, not just for being a Sorengale, but also for being kind of a fearless warrior. And this kind of makes Violet shrink a little bit. She's like, oh, I really didn't want this to happen. Um, and she really just didn't want to be recognized as a Sorengale. So there's some person in line behind them talking shit, and Violet just kind of rolls her eyes and brushes him off, doesn't let him get to her. They also uh, run into two people that they're introduced to. So one of them is named Dylan and one of them is named Rhiannon. And they're essentially the two people in front of Violet in line. So when Violet signs in and she has to say goodbye to Mira, she talks to them. And we learn that both Dylan and Rhiannon have been training their entire lives to become writers. And they're so fucking excited. And this is in direct contrast with what we just talked about with the constricted rebel children. Like... Not everybody's happy to be here. Oh, also, should be mentioned, Violet doesn't have a choice either. No. Also, the other thing that I feel like can be mentioned is because the rebel children are conscripted, they did have the luxury of training their whole lives. Yes. Which Violet yes, they did. did not. Um, so it's at this point that I want to bring up my other major issue with this book that lasted for most of the book. This book is essentially divergent with dragons. If you've read Divergent, there are so many similarities. And like, yeah, okay, we could argue all day that they're different stories. Fine. But allow me to tell you the similarities that we have thus far. And I will keep going throughout this entire episode and series of episodes because please do. I have at least 10 points, so I'll bring them up as they come up. First of all, we have the main character who is a weak girl joining the hardcore career group. That's what happens in Divergent, and that's what happens here. Granted, in Divergent, she chooses that. Here, Violet doesn't. I don't give a shit. Everyone expects them to fail immediately. So there's this test right away, which we are getting to the test of crossing the bridge. And in Divergent, they have to jump onto a moving train, both of which, if you miss, you die. The first test of, like, you chose the thing. Cool. Mm-hmm. We also have the general plot of, like, war and rebellions going on. Um, So that's three points. I just handed up, like, five fingers and had to bring it down to three. (laughs) I have more that I will bring up as we go, but I wanted to start now so that it can be fresh in your minds as we continue. I remember when we first read this book, you were saying how some of the scenes even word for word or scene by scene feel like they came out of Divergent? Yes. So when we get to a little bit later, this is a spoiling thing because you know, like it's War College and Violet is our main character. She's not going to die um, yet. I don't know if she dies later. Um, they get to scenes of sparring on mats and those scenes, I swear, are almost verbatim from Divergent just with different names put in. Like... The way that they're partnered up to fight each other and then the rankings of that. And it just, it seems all the same. Also, one point I forgot to mention is we have Dane, who's like this childhood friend, that love interest. That's also in Divergent. There is a childhood childhood friend that is in the like badass faction that was a love interest. And it just, it's been a while since I read this book. So the scenes that felt identical um i can't call out as quickly but the ones that i do really think about are the 
sparring mat vibes. And when they eventually get to like their bunker, it's the fucking same. It's the same. Yeah. But I'm really surprised with that many similarities that there's not like a a copyright <laughs> infringement or like an intellectual property suit filed. I know. And I even tried to, when we first read this book, I was looking online to see like, am I the only one who sees this? Like, is it me? And there's not a lot. Like, there were a couple um, book reviews that are like, hey, guys, is this is this like divergent to you? But <laughs> <laughs> no one seems as like fiery. I've never seen it on TikTok. Like, I've only, it's not that like I know everything that's on TikTok, but I've never seen this issue come up. And it kind of bugs me because I really liked Divergent. And I just, uh, fine. And I, I don't know if Rebecca Yarrow's got inspiration. You can pull inspiration. It just feels like she took this entire story and added dragons. Yeah. And I will add more points. I'm not done. There are more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. This is intermission. This is intermission. We will return. The bar is now open. So Violet and Dylan and Rhiannon and then the jerk behind them are all ascending this tower with the preparation of going to this bridge. And they're talking. Not the asshole, but Dylan and Rhiannon and uh, Violet. And as they talk, we learn that writers are at the top of the hierarchy in this military order. And they get perks along with that. So some of those perks are dress code. The dress code is not as strict as long as they're wearing black. They get status, right? So kind of that prestige. And then they also get the right to marry someone sooner than other officers in the military. And that has to do with the fact that they have a much shorter life expectancy. (laughs) Dylan, in particular, has someone waiting at home for him. And he's very excited to graduate and be able to go back to them ASAP. As they get to the top of the platform, the jerk behind Violet that was talking shit catches up and continues to talk shit. He says things about Violet like, She doesn't look like her family. She's going to die immediately. What a weakling. Blah, 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 blah. As Violet's kind of tuning this out, she looks down and she realizes Rhiannon's boots are smooth. So she makes Rhiannon swap left boots with her so that they can each have one rubber-soled boot. This is just for the bridge crossing, and she says as much. And Rhiannon's just like, okay, but goes along with it. We learn that the bridge and the ravine, so the crossing, this entire thing, claim about... 15% of all candidates who want to join the writers. When Violet and the other two get to the front, there are three writers that are taking names and metering them out on the bridge, right? So they all just don't go out in a crush. They like basically time them. So if somebody wants to sabotage somebody else, they have to like either catch up or slow down to get to them. Which is doable. But I did appreciate that it's not just like 47 people go onto this essentially tightrope balance beam situation. Bye-bye. Bye. One of these writers stops Violet dead in her tracks. He's described thusly, quote, he's tall with windblown black hair and dark brows. The line of his jaw is strong and covered by warm, tawny skin and dark stubble. And when he folds his arms across his torso, the muscles in his chest and arms ripple, moving in a way that makes me swallow. And his (laughs) eyes, his eyes are the shade of gold-flecked onyx. The contrast is startling, jaw-dropping even. Everything about him is. His features are so harsh that they look carved, and yet they're astonishingly perfect, like an artist worked a lifetime sculpting him. And at least a year of that was spent on his mouth. Hmm. I knew immediately that this was not only a love interest, but the boy she's supposed to stay away from. 
The Forbidden Fruit. As a tour. Zayden Riorson. Big Trouble in Little China. She even says he is, quote, get you into trouble and you like it level of hot. Which I feel like we've all known at least one of those. And uh, 100%. it is <laughs> it is a what's the word I want to say? Like a tempting fruit. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is something that's hard to say no to for sure. Yes. And Violet finds that it's it's like electric an electric shock down her spine that she sees this person is and it is, it is that attracted to him. Rhiannon, of course, outs Violet because they're taking names, and Zayden is immediately like, "Oh, you're a Sorengale." He seems to know Rhiannon though, and is intrigued by the fact that Rhiannon is looking out for Violet. So he like notices the fact that they're both wearing the same pair of shoes, for example. And Violet has absolutely no chill because he immediately, <laughs> she immediately asks Zayden if he's going to kill her. Which, like, girl. Come on! <laughs> Are you going to murder me right now? Because my sister said you were going to murder me on sight and you haven't killed me yet. So, like, how long do I have to live? Also, you're pretty. Kay. Kay. <laughs> but just then, they look out on the bridge and they see Dylan, uh, who slips and falls to his death. And that's when Zayden remarks that he doesn't have to kill Violet because the bridge is going to do it for him. Damn. Rhiannon goes and tells Violet that she'll waver her on the other side, and then it's Violet's turn. As Violet starts her turn, she hears one of the other writers remark to Zayden that he thought that the General Sorengale only had one daughter, and Violet tells him kind of over his shoulder that she gets that a lot. And I love the snark of Violet. It's one of the things that I did appreciate early on in this book. Yes, and I will say that in my comparison today to Divergent, Violet is more quickly an a likable character, I think. She has more of a like rounded personality. Um yeah. and sh- her snark is legit. But may I just say that that comment does lend a little bit to my theory I made that maybe she's not her daughter. It does, kind of, yeah. So as Violet starts her turn, she hears the jerk behind her give his name, and we learn that it's Jack Barlow. He is going to be the grade-A bully for the book. Spoilers. And as she's kind of cautiously moving out, he goes to push her, and Violet, like, really starts moving after that. She moves a lot faster. Yeah. (laughs) She feels herself start to panic as she's crossing the bridge, because not only is the bridge small, but it's also storming out. And I've also read fan theories that say that the mother called the storm to intentionally kill Violet, which I think is very interesting. I do think it's interesting because the storm does come up when she is like halfway across and then seems to fizzle out when she finishes. Yeah. But again, why? If that is true, I know. why? Why do you why why are you so obsessed with me? Why are you so obsessed with me? So as she starts to panic, Violet's crossing the bridge and she starts to calm herself by reciting memorized history. Which I think is a clever bit of information dumping. Usually, like, we get it in, like, conversations or just block text. But I liked that we got a little bit of context in this in this particular context. So, what do we learn? Oh, no. I thought you were asking me what we learned. And I was like, I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, we, we frequently hate on information dumps. Um, but, like you said, this is a really interesting way to do it. It gives us... Good background of the world that we do need without being boring. And it makes sense for the character because, again, she trained as a scribe. She knows all the history and all the knowledge. Um, yeah, she's a bookworm. She's a bookworm. And it's it's such a natural, it's a realistic coping mechanism, too. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So we learn a couple of things. 
First, we learn that the continent is home to two kingdoms who have been at war for 400 years. Navarre is the larger of the two. And Tyrendor, where the Tyrish Rebellion took place, is the largest and southernmost province. Tyrendor shares a border with Pomorial, which is the other kingdom that they're at war with. These kingdoms have different and complementary economies, and despite the war, they have agreed to like trade between them four times a year, which seems relatively civil, I guess. It just seems so weird to be like, okay, we're at war except for these times when like we actually really need each other. Right. Peace for like two days. Thank you. And then we're going to go back to fighting. Like maybe that's a good um, crutch to start, I don't know, building an alliance since you clearly need each other. Right. But whatever. So as Violet's making her way and reciting and trying to bring herself down, she makes the mistake of looking back at Jack and she sees him throw the candidate behind him off the bridge to this person's death. Like, yeets him off the bridge? Yeah, not a great guy. And then Jack starts coming for her. So Violet starts running from him, and she's determined either to fall or succeed, but to not let the asshole kill her, which I appreciate. So much respect for that. Right. As Jack gains on her, he keeps talking shit like a homicidal maniac, and he catches her at the entrance of the other side of the bridge. He tries to tackle her, but she grabs a dagger and holds it to his balls. Cut his balls off! Sorry. She cut his balls off. She's then given the option of what to do because she's technically made it across the bridge and she's a fully fledged cadet. But as Jack hasn't crossed the finish line yet, he is technically fair game. If she were to harm him or even kill him, she wouldn't be violating any of the rules of the college. And so basically the people who are there, the writers are like, your move, funny man. (laughs) But Violet ultimately decides to be merciful and lets Jack go. And I can't help but think that it was a mistake. And looking forward into the book that I've already read, it was a mistake. Also, here's my next point on Divergent. There is a clearly psychotic male character that is gunning for the lead female for no real reason. Yep. Other than spite. Other than other than he's a psychotic idiot. Yeah. So. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome sauce. Also, I do like the, your move, funny man. And she should have cut his balls off. Like, fine, make him, she should have lived, but she should have at least stabbed him in the testicles. Yeah, stabbed him in the testicles and then hit his carotid artery. Yeah. So he bleeds out. Yeah. Yeah. So at the beginning of each chapter, we get a little excerpt from what we assume to be literature from In World. And I have not been writing them down, but I am going to read you one now and a couple later on because they tell us something about the world. So this one is, quote, blue dragons descend from the extraordinary word I can't pronounce line known for their formidable size. They are the most ruthless, especially in the case of the rare blue dagger tail whose knife like spikes at the tip of their tail can disembowel an enemy with one flick. So this is the first information that we get about dragons and what kinds there are. We go on to learn that there are also red dragons, green dragons, black dragons, etc. I was so stoked to meet the dragons because, again, I love dragons because it's dragon tails, dragon tails. Let's all go. Nope, I fucked it up. (laughs) (laughs) AK! So Violet reunites with Rhiannon inside the writer's side of the college, and they celebrate that they both made it alive. Rhiannon is incredibly grateful for the boot. She says that she surely would have fallen to her death without it. As they go further in, Violet is clearly injured and lightheaded from all of the adrenaline, and she's like, 
kind of almost fainting. They quickly run into Dane, who has gone from cute to gorgeous in Violet's estimation. He's got a beard now and some scars, and he's harder than the last time Violet remembers him, so no longer the soft boy of her childhood. Dane and Rhiannon kind of get into it over feeling protective over Violet, which I do love. Like, Dane's like, who the fuck are you? And Rhiannon's like, who the fuck are you, bruh? I do really love that. Yeah. And Violet's just like, Dane, Rhiannon, Rhiannon, Dane. Chill. We're all, we're all friends here. <laughs> yeah. And Dane even asks, like, do you even trust her? And Violet's like, yes, I do. Can you calm the fuck down? Dane, for real. Like, if Mira <laughs> treats Violet like she's a... Drinking violet. Dane super does. Oh, 100%. So yeah. much. Like, it's it's disgusting. So Dane accepts that, and he tells Rhiannon to go tell the person in charge of roll call that he's admitted them both to his quadrant. He is a squad leader, which is unheard of for a second year, so he's got a very impressive track record, apparently, so far. When Dane and Violet are alone, he curses the fact that she's even there, <laughs> and he clearly still cares for her. He's out of his mind with worry that she was crossing the bridge. She, he doesn't understand what's happening. And he takes her to his room for they, so they can talk privately. Violet is very happy once they get there that the only thing of personality in his room is a book that she gave him in the Crovelin language. At this point, I was wondering if this was YA or why choose because there are at least two potential love interests, of course, of Dane and Zayden. But I was also a little afraid that Jack might be a potential love interest. I'm glad he is not. But. Yeah. You know, books do that. Books do that. Books do be doing that. And honestly, I would even be fine with a white shoes with Dane and Zayden at some point. Yeah. But. But. I really don't think that's going to happen. No. And it better not. We'll we'll talk about fan theories at the end. But I'm not a fan of the fan theories. I'm not either. At least the ones that we have right now in the beginning of November. Correct. I'm sure there will be spoilers galore. Once they're alone, Dane and Violet confess how much they've missed each other, and Violet starts tending to her knee. So this is where we learn that not only is she weak physically, but her ligaments are weak too because she has that that chronic disease. And so the knee injury that she got when she was crossing the bridge and Jack tackled her is worse than it would be otherwise. As she's tending to her knee, Dane and Violet flirt with each other, and Violet is ecstatic that they both seem to be on the same page in terms of wanting the other, or at least being interested. But all too soon, they have to hurry back to the main area because they don't want to be caught, essentially, alone in a compromising position. And, like, they got places to be, I presume. Well, it's kind of a, like, a big ado in the the main area. It feels like Dane should be there to be, like, I don't know, coordinating his people or something. Yeah! Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On their way back, Dane again tells Violet that she that he can't believe she's there, and he's clearly very angry with her mother at forcing her to be so. Uh, yeah. He tells her that there's a back way from the writer's quad into the scribe quad, and he'll take her through that. But this raises Violet's hackles. Dane skirts around the fact that Violet's weak and that she, you know won't really survive and Violet takes a lot of offense at this and Dane tells her eventually that he's just trying to protect her because he doesn't want to see his best friend die he asks her to please let him save her Violet tells him that her mother said she'd haul her back to the writer's quad if she left so she'll either leave as a writer or a name on a stone which 
again, this is this is well, this is the first time we see that Violet does have a way out. There is a way out. It's not the last time we're going to see this. And she says, no, I mean, sure, we get sort of the consequence that her mom would bring her back anyway. But we'll learn later that, like, she couldn't even do that if she wanted to. Well, and okay, what happened to not acknowledging her, right? Like, yeah, so like she wouldn't, if you can't be acknowledged, you're not gonna be dragged back. Right. I mean, come on, be consistent. It, it doesn't make any sense. So they go back to the main area where everybody else is, but they go through different ways as they're not keen to give everyone leverage that they know each other or they might even be, you know, close. Violet meets back up with Rhiannon, who introduces her to another woman, Tara. And Tara is confident like Mira, and Violet kind of gets the impression that Rhiannon might be into her. After the trial, we learned that 301 candidates survived to become cadets, and 67 did not. Bring out your dead! Bring out your dead! I'm not dead. Sorry. <laughs> I'm feeling better. I'm feeling better, really. <laughs> so there's a, a commandant leading the ceremony that closes the trial, and this man's name is Panchek. We learn a little bit about him that apparently he's angling for General Sorengale's position and then he wants to go for General Melgren's position. But Violet reveals that Melgren's signet, signet power allows him to see the outcome of any battle before it happens, basically seeing the future, and there's no fucking way that anybody else would lead the, the military without that power. Right. Like, he would have to die before anyone came next. Right. Do we know what Panchak's signet power is? Um, I don't think we do. Interesting. So we learn through this ceremony that only about a fourth of the cadets will live to graduation. Jesus. So this is where we were talking about before. Like, you don't get a second chance. Like, once you're here, you either become a writer or you die. <laughs> Which, again, <laughs> what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Why are the stakes so high for a character whose stakes don't need to be this high? Right. It's just immediately everybody's at 100. Yeah. We also learned that the wing leader's word is law. So the way that this school is organized is that there are four wings. So there are four leaders. And then they, of course, all have their leadership team. So when we say the wing leader's word is law, there's four of these people. So each of the four wings has three sections in it. And each of those sections has three squads. So it's it's kind of that pyramidic, pyramidical it's the pyramidical kind of hierarchy that you usually associate with military. Each squad has about 15 to 16 people in it. So 15 to 16 times three times three times four. That's how many people are in the college. Which makes me, makes me wonder what happens if, I mean, so 67 died and I guess there, there's not a lot of candidates to volunteer, but these are very evenly spaced. And there's there's like three years of school, right? There's like first year, second year, third year. So I wonder like, and this, it truly doesn't matter, but I'm curious how big the squads have ever been or how small they've ever been. I am too. And we kind of get a little bit of indication that they are smaller than they used to be because the number of dragons oh, has dwindled. right, yes. But we don't get proportions right so of the 540 people ostensibly that are in the school right now 301 of them came from the new fresh recruits so that yeah. means that the death rate has to be pretty high which kind of speaks to the quarter of cadets will live to graduate thing but jesus yeah 
Yeah. So anyway, we learn that Violet and Rhiannon are in the second wing with Dane, and that Jack Barlow is in the first wing. So they're in completely different sections. Hopefully, Violet doesn't have to worry about him too much. During this kind of organization of the new cadets, Violet catches Zayden looking at her, and she squares her posture trying to show that she's not intimidated. But then for some reason, this kind of interaction leads to their their whole squad, Dane included, being moved into Zayden's wing. So they were not in Zayden's leadership, and now they are. And Zayden seems real fucking smug about it. And, like, Zayden orchestrates this, right? Like, Oh, very clearly he goes to talk to the other wing leader, and he's like, hey, I want that that squad. And the wing leader's like, sure, bruh. Sure, bruh, I don't give a shit. This sort of... And I'm just a little salty, at least in the beginning of this book. This sort of taps into the whole, like, this book didn't need need to be this long. This didn't need to happen because it doesn't mean anything. Like, they could have just been assigned to Zayden from the get-go, and you have the same issues. Well, and you could have, if you wanted it to be the thing that Zayden was looking out for Violet, fine. But you could have said, like, oh, you know, Zayden made that request before, like, the ceremony even happened, right? Like, you could have woven that in still. Yeah. So in this, as kind of the final part of this ceremony, we learn a couple of things about dragons. Um, as the ceremony winds down, eight dragons join them and perch on the outer walls. We learn that dragons don't tolerate humans who aren't bonded to them, and so they really don't like going near strangers. They've got a big stranger danger thing. Stranger danger! Not only this, but they need humans to develop signet abilities from bonding, and that allows them to weave protective wards that power... Um, basically the protection of all of Navarre. So in this war that they're locked in, these protective wards are crucial, and that's why riders are such a big component of the military. I did, I do really like the way um, the author creates this symbiotic relationship with the dragons and the riders, Mm -hmm. because we do learn later that the dragons have their own social hierarchies. So, like, they don't serve the riders, nor do the riders serve the dragons. Like, they're very much... Mm -hmm separate entities that have to work together. And I just, I really liked that. It was a really interesting way to look at it. I feel like so often the dragon is just essentially like a pet, a tool. Exactly. Yeah. Not a a sentient being of its own. Right. Or not a sentient being that has like its own entire political structure. Right. So once the dragons join them, This intimidates some of the cadets, and they run screaming toward the doors to this kind of arena. And over these doors, there is this motto carved, quote, a dragon without its rider is a tragedy, a rider without their dragon is dead. Which you probably have heard in relation to this book. It's a nice and succinct way to describe the world. But basically, the reality of this is that once you're bonded to a dragon, you cannot live without the dragon. So if the dragon dies and you're perfectly healthy, guess what? You're dying too. Mm -hmm. But dragons live just fine without their bonded, right? So if one of their current bonded rider perishes, they'll go on to bond with another rider. These, I understand why the scene happens because it, it also shows like the fearsomeness of the dragons. What did these people think they were signing up for? Did you think you were going to ride puppies? Like, of course they're scary. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah. I don't understand what you thought you were here for. I don't either. And the people who flee are incinerated by the dragons, <laughs> right? They're Obviously. Weak. Can't be tolerated. Can't be given a second chance. No, no. No, no. No, no. They must be killed. Immediately. And during this whole thing, Violet has a staring contest with the biggest dragon ahead of her, which is a blue one. 
And finally, Zayden makes closing remarks that half of these cadets will be dead by the same time a year from now, a third of them a year after that. And he pointedly says that no one cares who your mommy or your daddy is, that everyone's treated the same. He remarks that even King Tauri's second son died in the threshing. The threshing is, of course, when they choose a dragon. And King Tauri is the king of Navarre. Which, oof. Sorry, I was going to say, I did make a prediction here that there was going to be some bonding, cross-bonding thing with Violet and the Blue Dragon. I didn't make that prediction at this point. I just predicted that that was definitely Zayden's dragon. See, I actually didn't make that connection. I just assumed there was going to be some issue with Violet and this dragon. Like, the dragon was going to bond with her and, like, project their previous rider or something. Oh, my God. Yeah. That would be wild. I know! (laughs) So, the college is in full swing now, and some morning later, all of the cadets are in regulation gear. They've slept in communal barracks, and... They're all at an assembly listening to the names of the dead who didn't cross the bridge. Which is such a fun way to start every morning. Exactly. (laughs) So fortunately for Violet, Jack Barlow is on a completely different floor of the barracks than she is. So she was not harassed, essentially, in the middle of the night. Dane, meanwhile, is really good at pretending he doesn't know Violet. Doesn't even give her the time of day, which she's fine with. It seems like this is the first official day of class. And so they learn that they will go to whatever they have for class, and then they will spar in the evening, and that is considered, quote, gym class. (laughs) Yep. They're all preparing for the next big challenge, which is called the Gauntlet, and this is a terrifying vertical obstacle course that will happen in two months, and then after, directly after this Gauntlet, there will be a presentation where the dragons will get their first look at the cadets. Two days after that will be the threshing. So they're preparing for the thr- ultimately the threshing, which is when they will be hopefully bonded with the dragon. I was so glad that we get this um, like sequence of events and that the sequence is short. So it's not like yes. it's just a couple months to get through this. It's not going to be an unreasonable amount of tasks and like wild things that getting through it is going to take six books just to, like, get to your dragon, so... Well, and it kind of makes sense, too, because, like, not only is there a high death rate, but not everybody's going to bond with a dragon, and so, essentially, they don't want to teach you all of the, like, advanced dragoneering, right. <laughs> if you will, if you're not going to bond with a dragon. And we, we see an example of what they call a repeat cadet, so somebody who joined the prior year but then didn't bond with a dragon, and so, basically, he's having to go through the whole process again. Because you can't quit unless you die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I, I, I appreciate it too, that that was succinct and it doesn't feel like it takes forever, right? At the no. pacing of that particular part is good. Yeah. And it, and it also doesn't feel rushed. Like it feels like a realistic pacing of getting through these trials to get to your dragon. Yeah. So this repeat cadet that I mentioned, his name is Sawyer and he's kind of tasked, uh, to lead the new cadets in Dane's section around so they don't get lost. <laughs> Babies. So <laughs> as everybody kind of breaks off to head to class. Dane signals for Violet and Rhiannon covers for her so that she can meet with him. She meets Dane in the rotunda where there are six statues of dragons prominently in their different colors, red, green, brown, orange, blue, and black. When she meets him, Dane asks if she's okay, whether anything tried anything with her. 
And for Violet, she describes Dane's worry as sitting on her chest like a stone. And this is the first indication that we have that Violet's really chafing under this kind of suffocating amount of worry and angst that Dane is putting upon her. And complete lack of any sort of belief in her. Right. She protests to Dane that she's fine, she ate, she rewrapped her knee, everything's fine. She goes on to ask him why their squad was moved, and he confirms it's because Zayden wanted her dead. <laughs> this fact is apparently also common knowledge in the leadership cater, which, super comforting. Right? Jeez. And this is where Dane also confirms that the dragon that Violet had a staring contest with is Zayden's dragon. So. He describes this dragon as being vicious and, dis- and says that that's a perfect pair for Zayden, so there are two peas in a vicious pod. Which, damn, bro, tell me how you really feel. Truly. It feels very much like, I don't know, <laughs> Dane's at 100 with this. From the get-go, bro! Like, it, it really blows my mind that for a college that's supposed to be eventually working as a team, there's a lot of self-motivation and backstabbing happening here. Like, even amongst the bonded writers. Yes. And it that that also doesn't make sense to me. No, and it goes back to the whole thing of, like, the only reason that Zayden does, like, that Dane doesn't like Zayden and that Zayden and, you know, like, his posse are, like, outcasts is is because they're writers. They're, or, sorry, not they're writers. Because they're rebel kids, right? Like, it's this inherent prejudice. It's not that they're actually assholes. It's that they showed up and everybody had this preconceived notion about them. Yeah, and we see that, too. Like, even when we see other rebel kids, um, like, they're kind of portrayed to be, like, harsher and harder, but... None of them are assholes. Like, they're just no. other students. I mean, Jack is not a rebel kid, and he's an asshole. Right, exactly. So yeah, prejudice is a good word. Just it, that It's just based on that and nothing in, like, reality. So, Zayden's dragon's name is Scale. And I'm probably saying that wrong. It's S-G-A-E-Y-L. And I'm so sorry, but the TikToker didn't have that one pronounced, so we're going with scale. We're doing our best. If we figure it out before the next episode, we will make a correction. Yes. We go on to learn that Dane's own dragon is a red sword tail named Calf. And Violet admits that she's having trouble reconciling this Dane that she's seeing now with the old Dane that she knows, right? He's definitely more mistrustful, more hard around the edges right like a a war hardened person and dane tells her that he's still the same on the inside okay he tells her that his signet power is the ability to read a person's recent memories if they touch if he touches them but that it's not common knowledge because they want to use him in intelligence so basically keep it on the the down low dane goes on to say that whatever zayden will end up doing to violet he will likely stay within the codex because he respects the rules of the school And the last thing that he admits to Violet was that he was, quote, really close to a now third-year wing leader, which uh, I immediately intuited meant that he and this person were sleeping together. Uh, 100%. Hubba hubba. Zayden staying within the Codex um, also means that he can't just outright kill Violet. Right. Yeah, that's against the rules. Unless it's in a challenge situation. Yes. But also tellingly, the wing leaders won't will very rarely be in a challenge situation with the cadets. Yes. But I've seen foreshadowing before. I've seen foreshadowing before, and I I know this book, yeah. <laughs> so when they exit their tryst, of course, they run smack into Zayden. 
who accuses them of being way too obvious. And for some reason, Dane tells Violet to run and she does. Which we just talked about how he can't do anything to you. Right. Like way to have zero chill. And it seems just like, uh, 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 run. And like, why? Also, do you know how suspicious you look running? Like you're allowed to talk to him. I just Dane, just Dane. Yeah, I have just also Violet. Like, come why on. are you running? I would be like, um, why? Yeah. So at the beginning of the next chapter, we get an intro bit that is from Lilith Sorengale's de- deposition, essentially, and we learn that Lilith is the first name of Violet's mother. So General Sorengale is General Lilith Sorengale, and in this deposition. We learned that she objected to the forcible conscription of rebel leaders' children into ridership. And that's the only thing we get out of it. We don't know the context. We don't know the questions. We don't know anything more about this. Which is interesting in retrospect. Yes. Then we're in Battle Brief, which is the class that everyone takes together. So it's the only class that this happens. All first through third year cadets. Violet ruminates that she's happy to be sat with all the first years, though she wishes she could remember all their names. And I'm like, girl, why? I know. Why? Because, again, most of them are going to be dead. So why waste the brain power? Yeah. It seemed like this. There was a couple of other things, and I'm kind of blanking on what the specifics are. But this is a really specific thing that I call out. She she has these, like, moments that I think are meant to give her kind of a bleeding heart that just don't quite land because she says things like, oh, I wish I could remember all their names. But then she doesn't go out of her way to like get to know any of these people. No. And she actively is like watching her back. And I'm like, so then why do you care about who these people are? Yeah, you're right. Those things are a bit um, contrary to her personality or like what they're trying to do. Right. It's like she's trying to be like a peace love and everybody, but she's not doesn't act that way. Well, and we'll find um, not in this episode, but later, like the only time she really is a way to learn about people is to use it against them. Yep. A hundred percent. Which, like, girl, get it. But but it's not let's not pretend. So Battle Brief is exactly what it sounds like. It's a historical and strategy based class meant to prepare the cadets for war. And they take this class every day. It's the only class that they have every day. There is a scribe that assists Professor DeVera, and this scribe's name is Professor Markham. Both Markham and DeVera recognize Violet, and Markham visibly mourns the loss of Violet as his star pupil through a brief but public sigh. <laughs> Zero chill. Zero chill. Just like, <sighs> my disappointment is palpable. <laughs> The two professors go on to talk about how important scribes are to continue the education of writers, and Violet remarks that that is precisely why she wanted to be one, but this is why we can't have nice things. But again, scribes are so valued, so I don't understand why it seems like such a problem for her mom, because they're clearly respected. Like, he is in Battle Brief. He is privy to all of this. He is preparing the material for Battle Brief. So, like... Uh, what is with the disdain? I don't get it. Uh, what is with the disdain? What is with the timing of the disdain? You were married to a scribe. And yeah, you let your daughter do scribe training for 19 and a half years. Right. I have to, I have to think that something changed because it's a very specific time window, six months, right? Yes, it is. So like, 
I really hope that between Brennan's death a year ago, or sorry, they don't they don't really give us a timing on Brennan's death. No, I don't think so. If I remember correctly. No, we... It was her dad that died a year ago. Yeah. So between the dad's death a year ago and then six months, something had to have happened to make the mom have this wild change of heart. Yeah, and I really hope we get an answer to that. And I hope it's a good one. I know, because... Getting a bad one is going to be just as bad as not getting one at all for me. I would rather not have one. Me yeah. too, because then I could just have my own theories and be like, well, at least my theory is good. Right. So in Battle Brief, they get, a t- uh, they get briefed about an attack along the border. And we learned that griffins were part of this attack. Griffins can also bond with humans and channel signet, signet powers. But dragons are the only creatures able to power wards that make all other magic but their own null and void. So it's important to understand this concept, so I'll say it a little bit differently. Griffins and dragons have magic. They both bond with humans, and this allows those humans to have signet powers. But dragons, through bonding with humans, can create magical wards that once other magical users cross that, they can't use their magic. So dragon riders and dragon magic users are good, but if you ride a griffin or if you ride a donkey and you channel magic, <laughs> you can't do it inside these wards. A magical donkey. I was curious. I really liked that we see griffins because I feel like that's not a very common mythical creature that we see mm-hmm. in these books. And, and it made me wonder what other creatures are out there. Yeah, it made me wonder too. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I really hope that we get more exposition on that world, that part of the world in the next book. Me too. So Violet at first asks questions through Rhiannon and then gets called out (laughs) by Professor Markham and starts asking directly. The gist is that the Griffins during this attack were clearly looking for something, but neither professors know what that thing was still. And this... um. Violet's questioning does serve to show how shrewd she is to, like, kind of read between the lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she has a sharp brain. Later, they go to sparring class, and Violet strikes a deal with Rhiannon and Sawyer to help them with their history work if they help her with hand-to-hand combat, because she's woefully bad at it. This is another Divergent where some friend steps up to help the weak one learn to fight after hours. Wow. Friendship. Magic. Violet also witnesses Jack sparring, and he ends up snapping the neck of the cadet that he's sparring with, but it's unclear if the cadet actually died. Hazard a guess he did. I don't really know how you can snap someone's neck and then they don't die, but yeah, never tried. So. It's very clear that the, this, these sparring classes and the sparring like competitions that we'll get to is one of the ways where people can lose their lives. Yes. Violet spars with a rebel kid named Imogen, who clearly wants Violet dead because of who her mother is. But Imogen easily bests Violet and breaks her arm because Violet doesn't yield like a fucking idiot. And this causes Dane to completely overreact and carry Violet bodily to a healer. Oh my god, Dane. It is her arm. She can walk. She's fine. Violet admonishes him for doing so because he freaked out like she meant something to him and now everybody knows it. Um, he was also like screaming at her to yield even before the arm breaking so then like come on man he says that she does mean something to him and she ruminates yes that's abundantly clear and now everybody else knows it too way to go bucko right the healer Winifred comes in and it's clear that Winifred knows Violet well we learned that 
Healers don't have magic, but menders do. So Violet's brother, Brennan, was a mender. And it appears that menders can, like, manifest in any faction, right? No, menders are, menders are dragon riders. Oh, menders are dragon riders. My bad. Yeah. Disregard. I forgot. So Winifred is checking Violet out and determines that she needs a mender, and so she calls her husband, Nolan, over, who is a mender. So to be clear, menders must be bonded with a dragon to be able to channel their mender magic. Ah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Dane doesn't want Nolan called. He wants to use this injury as an excuse to send Violet to the scribes. But Nolan arrives and chastises Dane for doing such a good job of keeping Violet safe. And Violet essentially says, like, Dane, get the fuck out of here. I'm getting mended. So Violet is kind of fading in and out of pain, and she slurs her ascent to be mended. And this is where Nolan tells her, quote, I will always mend you. And I just have this note, why am I a sucker for grandfather figures? Like, we <laughs> hardly see Nolan. This is, like, one of the only scenes he's there. And it was just so touching. It was just so touching, the, like, I'll always mend you. It's just, uh, yeah. I'm such a sucker. Like, it's clear he was mended her before and, like, all of that stuff. Yeah, and, like, knows her history with her, like, loosey-goosey joints. And it's just, <laughs> we, love, we love a grandfather figure. I know. So... Nolan mends her, and he tells her to expect it to smart for a while, and Violet says this thing, quote, When you're as brittle as I was born, the pain of mending is only second to the pain of the original injury. And I'm confused. Was she born weak, or was the fever the thing that made her weak? I don't know. I think that was a bit of a mistake. Okay. Because, like, if she has this disease, it makes sense, but then why give her a fever that also, like, gives her the the hair? I don't know. Yeah. That was not clear. It was kind of redundant. We learn that mending is incredibly agonizing, and so they give Violet leather to bite down on. The subtext during this entire scene is that the writers only want the absolute strongest people in their ranks and are constantly sniffing around for weakness, whether it be physical, mental, or otherwise. And so not only does Dane want to use this to get her out of the scribes, he knows that it's just going to put an even bigger target on her back. And Violet knows this too, because she is so frail, essentially. When Violet gets back to the barracks, Rhiannon promises to help her because she's her only friend. And Violet crawls into bed and is intending to go to sleep, but she ends up finding a journal with a note from Mira under her pillow. This journal is a combination of Mira and Brennan's combined wisdom during their time at the Baskiath school. Mira writes to Violet that Brennan would have wanted her to live that she, Mira, wants Violet to live, and that she's so proud to be her sister. Aww. Meanwhile, Rhiannon's checking Tara out across the room. She's just like, yeah, that's nice, girl. What? Yeah. I do, I do like Rhiannon, just like, <laughs> Rhiannon's just into anything with tail, just like so sex positive. Which I do really appreciate, and I love how openly um, gay she is. Yes. Or bisexual. I think she's, I think bi. she's bi because yeah. we just kind of see her around and I love that. Uh-huh. Anything with a pulse. Really. Anything with a pulse, we're here for it. <laughs> you have a pulse and you are breathing. <laughs> Which again, we could get a wide choose with Rhiannon up in here. I'd be okay with that. I'd be fine with that. So Violet's looking through this journal and she's getting emotional seeing her brother's handwriting. We learned that apparently it's customary to burn the things of the dead, which seems like an overreaction to me. It really does. And we don't really get a, like, a reason why. It doesn't appear to be like a like a superstitious thing. It just, it's just customary, which is fine. We don't need detail, but 
Damn. It felt very, like, utilitarian, like, as a product of being in the military. Like, you don't need superfluous things kind of feeling. Yeah. But then you don't have anything to remember people by. Like, I just, I don't know. No, like, I like having things. Yeah. So in the journal, Brennan writes that the instructors stack the hand-to-hand matches intentionally to weed out the weakest quickly. If Mira slash Violet watch earnestly, they will know who are pitted against each other. And this gives Violet hope to survive. I think they also, in this book, tell her where the matches are posted, I think. Yeah, like... I don't really remember that. I think it wasn't here, too. Like, where and when she can find them. Yeah, because she knows, like, concretely who she's going to go up against, like, a week in advance. Yeah, and I couldn't... It does get a little confusing to me later, too. Like, if they're publicly posted... Just, like, where people don't really check out. Or she's, like, breaking into an office to see them. I feel like she's, like, breaking in. I think she's breaking into an office. Okay, that's kind of what I thought, too. But I'm pretty sure it's in this passage from Brennan that says, like, where and when that goes up. So we get another little excerpt. And this is an edict that tells us that gatherings of three or more cadets carrying rebellion relics. So these are the markings that they got from General Melgren's dragon. That gatherings of this type will be considered acts of sedition. Okay, Umbridge. Yeah, right. A few days on, we see Violet sneaking around after curfew, gathering ingredients for poison. (laughs) Her book of poisons was the only book that she and Mira decided that she would take with her because it was useful. She knows that challenges begin the following week, and she is determined to have an upper hand against her first opponent. On this journey, she must climb a tree to retrieve particular berries from a vine. And as she starts to head back down, berries in hand, she sees the woman who broke her arm, Imogen, and Zayden, who both have rebellion relics, right? And they're just kind of hanging out near the base of the tree. They speak, but Violet can't really hear what they're saying over the rushing river that's nearby. But they're soon joined by other writers with rebellion relics, almost two dozen in total. So way more than three. Way more than three. And Violet is very familiar with this edict. And she's like, "Ooh, this is a problem. This is bad news buyers. In this scene, we're introduced to another student named Garrick, as well as another second year who is Zayden's cousin, and his name is Bodie. (laughs) The two of them and Imogen seem to be running things along with Zayden. They are invested in the first, in their survival of the first years, and this whole thing is basically the four of them checking in on the newest cadets. They're cautioning them not to get into any acts of treason, don't draw attention to yourself, etc., etc., it's a pretty innocent conversation. Just like, don't don't fuck this up, guys. It's pretty wholesome. They're really just like everybody good. Yeah, like, need any get have any any problem? Okay, good. Like everyone everyone doing okay. We're here for you. We're all in this together. <laughs> yep. Don't break the law. One of the new cadets asks Zayden when they get to kill Violet, but Zayden tells them all that Violet is his for the taking. Hmm. Garrett, of all people, dissents, saying punishing children for the sins of their parents is the Navarre way and not the Tyrish way. Yes, thank you. Thank you. When they disperse, Violet waits a long time before moving because she doesn't want to get caught. But of course, when she finally does move, Zayden catches her. <laughs> he reveals to her that shadow wielding is his signet power because, of course, it is. I've read Akatar before and I know that the main love interests always wield shadows. We love these shadow daddies up in here. Look, um, they go on to have a surprisingly flirty conversation for two people who are mortal enemies. Yeah, it's pretty quick into like the maybe we don't hate each other. Oh, very quick. He makes, well, to, to you know, 
encourage that. He makes no move to kill her or hurt her, for one. And he even tells her that she should handle Jack Barlow sooner rather than later because he's going to be a problem, like giving her advice. Yes. He ends up asking her if Violet's going to tell on their gathering, and she truthfully says no. So he ends up leaving her, telling her to hurry back to bed before her wing leader realizes he, that she's broken curfew. But of course, he's her wing leader. Which is fun. Like, don't let, don't yeah. be caught out here by your wing leader. <laughs> Me. I love that too, because so Violet in her head is just like, this is definitely a trap. He's like evil and vile. And I'm like, girl, he's kind of cute. He's real cute. And which I. He's clearly flirting with you. Yeah. And I like this because it's sort of enemies to lovers, but they're never really enemies, which makes for yeah, a Violet's better the one story. That's just like, yeah. Violet's just the one that's like, oh, he definitely hates me and he's dead, gonna kill me. And Dane is the one that's perpetuating that. Right? Yeah. And Zayden's over here just like, what's up, girl? I like your hair. Hey, I'm trying to holler at you. Can I get can you? I, can I get you? Can I get him? Can I have him? Can I have him? <laughs> so the next day, the challenges begin, and Violet wakes up early for breakfast duty, and Dane meets her on the way. This seems to be a habit of theirs. They run into Rhiannon and Tara, who clearly spent the night together. Bum, chicka, wow, wow. Get it, Rhiannon. And uh, as they continue on, Dane asks endearingly if Violet has been with anybody, <clears throat> but she doesn't give him an answer. She's kind of like, that's none of your business. I love that she doesn't give him an answer. She doesn't do the like, of course not, Dane. She's just like, none, none ya. Yeah. None ya. She's not like, I only have eyes for you. No, she's like, no, nothing I like wouldn't that. tell you if it was true. He goes on to ask if she'll be okay in the challenge, and she tells him not to worry that she has a plan. She knows her opponent will be this kid, Orin, and he's not great with a knife or any other weapons, but he's got one hell of a punch. And I make the prediction that she's going to poison him. It's The telegraphing has been pretty obvious, so that wasn't a very difficult prediction to make. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Dane tells us to be careful and to especially avoid Jack Barlow. No shit. Right. Thanks, Sherlock. But Violet ruminates how different that advice is from what Zayden told her, right? So Zayden told her, handle him, and Dane's like, stay away from him. Which, again, speaks to, maybe we don't know a lot about what Zayden feels toward Violet yet, but it speaks to the complete lack of faith that Dane has in not only Violet's strength, but just her, like, intelligence. Right, her ability to handle her own shit. Yeah. Or even, like, her self-preservation. Like, of course she's not going to go fuck around with Jack. Looking for trouble. Yeah. Absolutely. So during her breakfast duties, Violet does indeed poison Orin's eggs. <laughs> Before the challenge, we learn in Professor Cowrie's class that red scorpion tails are the easiest to temper of all the dragons. He cautions the cadets to keep the temperament of dragons in mind during the threshing. And we learn that there are 100 dragons in total willing to bond this year so far, though some might change their minds in the two months that remain before the threshing. This 100 dragons is less than last year, which is less than the year before that, and they don't really have an understanding of why. All we know is that there are fewer and fewer dragons and more attacks on their borders and a steady supply of riders. So this juxtaposition or this situation doesn't make sense to Violet, Dragons don't share their reasons for not wishing to bond either, so there's just kind of this black hole of information that they're trying to make sense of. Though not scientifically proven, anecdotally, it seems fewer dragons is correlated with more failures of the wards that they help to power. This is interesting, and this is where we get the first 
inkling that something is not something right. is not right, and that the dragons function under their own decisions. Right, and they're not exactly being a hundred percent forthcoming with the humans. No, because it. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be misremembering, but it doesn't seem like the dragons are dying out. It just seems like they're less willing to bond. Correct. Which is really interesting. Crucially, and we learn this a little bit later on, humans don't know a whole lot about dragons, and they aren't allowed into the Vale, where the dragons breed and essentially live. So actually, humans don't have a good idea of how many dragons there are, even. Which is fun. I like that the dragons have their own secrets. I do, too. And I love that they can have such these these intimate relationships with humans, where they literally share minds, which we'll get to, but can keep secrets like that yes, from their people. because it seems like the humans can't keep secrets from their dragons. Not at all, yeah. So, just really interestingly constructed in this book. Mm-hmm. So they go on to talk about, in this dragon class, about Sigale, Zayden's dragon, and we learn that she is one of the rarest dragons. That, unfortunately, there are no blue dragons this year that are willing to be bonded, but that they should be wary of any blue dragon that they ever come across. Sigale, in particular, breaks the rules dragons follow, like bonding with ancestors of prior riders, meaning that she bonded with one of Zayden's ancestors somewhere along the way, but we don't know who. She is described as doing whatever she wants, whenever she wants, because she is the most powerful dragon of all of them. Which I love. She just does what the fuck she wants. Okay, but then they move on to black dragons, and they're like, just kidding, black dragons are more powerful. Right! (sighs) Okay. Great. (laughs) They're like, blue dragons are definitely the rarest and most powerful, except for these two black dragons that exist. Where one hasn't been seen for five years, and the other one is like, big Captain Melgren's dragon. Right, exactly. It's like, okay, so So they're the second most powerful and rarest. Right. Can we just be factual? And in another vein... Zayden, a rebel child, has the most powerful dragon. So again, what was the point of conscripting the rebel children? Like, who let that happen? Right. I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. Especially because, like, we go on to kind of get a little bit more into this, and in, we'll talk about it in the next episode. But like, Sigale is regarded, as we're seeing in this conversation, as being a little bit of a loose cannon, and. People are wary of her because she is so powerful. But also we're told that dragons have a good sense of people and don't bond with like essentially serial killers, mostly. Right. But it also So which is it, girl? I don't know. And it also makes me wonder about the whole marking of the children anyway, if that was a dragon's decision, but like clearly the dragons can still bond with them, so like what did that marking actually mean to the dragons? I just... That's what I'm interested in, because I don't think it's what the general thinks it is. I don't... Because it doesn't make sense for it to be that. No. So. I'm... So we, we do move on to the black dragons. General Melgren's dragon is black, but there's only one other one that we know exists, and he hasn't been seen in five years. And my prediction here is that he's going to bond with Violet. I also had that prediction. We learn that black dragons not only are the most powerful and the rarest... But they're also the smartest and most discerning. None have been born in the last century that the humans know of. We learned that the the dragon that hasn't been seen in a while, so the last black dragon that could be bonded, has refused to bond since his last rider was killed during the Tyrish Rebellion. Nalin is the dragon's rider's name, and we learned that Nalin's power was 
um, to siphon the power of other dragons and redirect it. So he was basically a mirror of everybody's power, which is fucking badass. That is badass. Some of these powers that we learn about are so cool. And other ones, I'm just like, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. We learned that Nowlin died trying to bring Brennan back from the dead with his power and died as a result. So Brennan and Nowlin died in this interaction. Violet, when she learns this, feels the grief of Nowlin as her own. And Professor Cowrie tells her that it's because she's probably feeling Brennan's loss. But I have to believe it's more than that. And this is when I start to think that maybe Nowlin and Brennan were lovers. Yes. Because, I mean, as we get into, like, the bonding where he made the prediction, they feel each other's feelings. Right. It almost speaks to, like, a predetermination of bonding. Yes. And, again, that they're lovers. The father... No. 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 (laughs) Yeah. No. No. That would be weird. That would be so weird. Do not like... So where we'll end this episode is as Violet turns to leave from class, Professor Cowrie pulls her back and tells her that she's smarter than both Mira and Brennan, so both of her siblings. And he adds that she might be more compassionate too, and that's why he believes that she'll make a great writer. Which, again, continues to show like how shitty Dane kind of is, because other people do have faith in her. Absolutely they do, yeah. And, I mean, Violet to... A- a certain extent, she's kind of gaslighting herself on this, but she believes she can do it too. Yeah, and she comes around on that um, and becomes more determined. And in that vein, I do appreciate her digging her heels in on like not running away. Um, yeah. Because we're not even done with the option she has to run away. Like those aren't over with. Exactly. We'll, we'll come back <sighs> we'll to that. We'll come back to that. Episode. Yeah. Um, so I do appreciate her digging her heels in like, no, like I'm going to prove it to myself that I can do this. Or mm-hmm. die trying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I respect. I don't understand why she has to in the first place. But now no. that she's here, I'm like, okay, fine. Now that she, once she's there and she starts to enjoy herself, and especially after she bonds with her dragons, I can understand why she stays. But before then, I'm like, girl, why? No, well, like, like the day after the first trial and you have like this Jack Barlow coming after you and like everyone... You just think everyone's going to murder you at any second? I'd be like, I'm out. I would have been like, bye. <laughs> bye, goodbye. bitch. Show me that back door. I don't need this in my life. No. Yeah. Goodbye. So anyway, as I mentioned, that's where we will end this episode. We are planning to cut this book into three parts. So join us next week for part two, where we will talk more about the story. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. 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 <laughs>